Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. All right, guys, and welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast. We are in our Elk 101 series, and we are uh, teaching you from the basics uh, how to elk hunt. And I have on the phone with me two elk hunting, um, what do you want me to call you? Elk hunting geniuses or elk hunting masters? Yeah, neither one. Just elk hunting lover for me. (laughs) Yeah, I, I just, I would say that I just do it a lot, (laughs) you know, so. Yeah, there you go. So I've got two elk hunters who love to elk hunt and, and will shed some light on how to elk hunt. How about that? There you go. That sounds right. All right. Um, so joining me today is David Holder from Raised Hunting and Chris Parrish from Bear Archery. So gentlemen, before we dive in, give it, give me a quick introduction to yourself. Uh, David, what all do you do over at Raised Hunting? Uh, what is Raised Hunting all about and how long have you been doing it? So uh, Raised Hunting is a television show on the Outdoor Channel. Um, we've been producing this um, series now for seven years. So that means we've been working on it for eight because we're always filming a year behind. Um, on top of that, we have Raised Outdoors, which is a new app we've launched that does exactly what we're talking about, teaches people how to um, get involved in the outdoors, not just hunting, but fishing and anything outdoors. And then on top of that, we have Raised at Full Draw, which is the nonprofit side where we actually um, conduct camps across the nation. Right now we're in six states. We do seven camps on non-COVID years. Um, and we're in the process of do, of doing a camp as we speak that I just pulled myself out of so we could come talk. Um, but here we actually physically do it. We actually teach these kids how to, um, how to hunt. They actually get certified by the States with a bow hunter education at the end of our camp. So it's four days and three nights. And so raised hunting has, was born, uh, several years ago through the fact that I, I love and believe in the outdoors and what God has given us. And I wanted to share that with other people and see a way to hit the most we could. So we've decided to do all these different things in order to reach as many people as possible. That is absolutely incredible, man. Um, I would encourage you, um, to keep, keep going, man. It's awesome what you're doing. Uh, obviously, we have one goal in mind, and that's to create new hunters. Um, you know, we do it from the from the podcasting platform, and you you got boots on the ground out there training them. Uh, so we'll certainly have to find a way to work better together um, in doing that. But man, just just keep going. That's what it's all about. Um, Chris, tell us about yourself, man. Well, I'm a lifelong hunter. I'm a product manager for Bear Archery. Um, Right now, I have uh, traditional archery, crossbows, boat fishing, broadheads, releases, and uh, recreational archery kind of under my belt. Um, I've been 
bow hunting since I was 12 years old. Ironically, the first three animals I've ever shot in my life was a, with a 71 Super Kodiak. So it kind of goes way back with the, the threadbare history, if you will, which I think is probably the pioneering factor of why most of us bow hunt. Um, I come from the outdoor industry as far as being involved in turkey calling and turkey hunting, building and designing turkey calls, competitive calling, been blessed to win 26 major championships. And that's kind of got what got me into the industry other than the love of hunting. And, uh, you know, I have quite the story that, that David does, but, you know, I, I do a lot of speaking at uh, church events and other events that I get asked to do and, just spreading the word about, you know, getting outdoors and spending time with your family and friends and those maybe not as fortunate to have someone take them out there. You know, if they choose not to harvest an animal, fine, but just enjoy what, you know, again, with piggyback off what David said, what God gave us, you know, I mean, this is, he's only made one, there's not going to be any more land made. This is all we've got. So we need to get out and enjoy it and take advantage of it and get more people interested. Absolutely. And that, what, what you just said, what you said about your first bow being a bear bow, you know, that's for a lot of people, that's that's their story is I was given a bear bow or I got a bear bow when I was a kid and I just fell in love with hunting. And that's that for me, that's my story, too, man. That's why that's why I'm still so passionate about bear archery and what they do, because, you know, that was the first bow that I actually purchased myself and I I, I learned to hunt with and I shot my first deer with. And so um, that that for me, that's why I love bear archery is because they stand for um, getting people involved in hunting. And so I'm also blessed. Uh, didn't know, didn't know that, that you gentlemen, um, that you gentlemen, I didn't know that you Chris shared at churches and stuff. And that's absolutely awesome. So, uh, but before we dive in, I do want to give a quick shout out to some of our great friends. We are talking elk hunting. Uh, so this fall, if you think, man, I really want to elk hunt, but I don't know where to start or how to start. Um, one of, one of my good friends over at Rocky mountain outfitters in, in Colorado they do it well. They've been doing it for about 11 years now, and they have successfully guided kids, adults, couples, anybody. So so if you've thought, I want to elk hunt, but I really don't know how to do it myself, uh, I would encourage you to check out Rocky Mountain Outfitters um, and go give it a shot. Just go out there and try elk hunting. Um, it's a blast. It's, it's something that I can say will, will change your life. Um, it, it'll change the way you view hunting. Uh, you know, if you've grown up in the South or in the Midwest, a deer hunter and, and heading out to the big open, open country of Colorado, um, it'll just change your whole perspective on hunting. So, uh, check out Rocky mountain outfitters in Colorado because they do it and they do it well. Um, so gentlemen, I've brought you on to talk hunting tactics. Um, so we've talked scouting and we've talked, you know, uh, how to get prepped for a hunt, but now it's actually time for the hunt. And I understand that when you first hop out of your truck, you know, for, for a boy growing up, uh, in the Midwest or in the South, um, my first time getting out of the truck at the mountain was just overwhelming. Uh, you've got mountains and valleys and peaks and crevices and you've got to go find an elk and sometimes it can become overwhelming so so when you when you actually go on the hunt um what are some of your some of the tactics you use in trying to locate and hunt these elk chris you going first or you want me to go ahead Dave. go you go ahead and start and i can piggyback okay um you know i guess if we're talking like i'm going to a brand new area i've never been I can tell you the first thing I'm doing now that I have the ability, used to it was topographical maps. Now we have the access to phones that give us things like Onyx and other, there's several platforms that you can use that will produce maps that you can see where things are. 
Um, the first thing that I'm looking for, probably almost no matter what state I go, I've hunted elk in I think seven or eight different states, something like that, is water. Water seems to be key. And, and then the next one is agriculture. Um, it depended upon how far back I'm going. Now, if I'm going in the backcountry and I'm hiking in, I don't worry about the agriculture. But water is always number one. If I can find water, then I typically am going to find all the animals. And, and if it's like water is overabundant and then that doesn't become the main source, then I'm looking for bedding areas and where I think these animals are going to start to go to and from um, as they go to feed. And then I start diving into areas like that. And there's no better way to find those areas than to actually physically go out there and see it. Um, and the West is huge. I know more people, you guys have probably heard those same thing. The guy who goes on five, four or five Western hunts never has seen a bull, never heard one bugle yet hunting public ground. And I started my whole elk career. I, I grew up in Virginia and I ended up living in Montana for almost 20 years. And I killed a bull every year that I lived there on public ground. And, and it was not because I was any good at it. It was because I learned to stop making the same mistakes over and over again, find where they are, why they're there, learn, learn why they're there. Once you learn why they're there, then you can take that and apply it to other areas. So that would be my first key to finding where I'm going to go. No, I, I couldn't have said that better. You know, when I first started hunting elk, I knew nothing about it. I just, you know, I was a turkey hunter. So as a turkey hunter, uh, I'm hunting a 700-pound animal that can smell me. So now I've got to take the wind in factor. i got to take how the wind plays in the mountains in factor. And so I, I you know, again, go off the top, topographical maps. You know, nowadays, as David mentioned, you know, the computer technology, wow, we've come a long way with everything. It's, it's amazing. But I, you know, and I'll, I could not say, I can't, I can't add any more to what David said on, on, on his end, but I will say through the, the 15 years that I've been elk hunting, and I've been very, well, 16 years, actually, I've been very blessed that 15 out of those 16 hunts were successful hunts, um, that there's key and i usually try to hunt typically later in the year uh, i do more hunting around new mexico now than i do anywhere just because i, I fell in love with a couple of units out there and that's where i like to hunt but and i hunt way back in i get away from the people i i, I pack in you know usually anywhere from five to seven miles and i kind of hunt the gym i, try, I usually can get a landowner permit and hunt the general area so with that being said um the biggest thing out there that is a factor is the water. Whether it's the rut or not, it's the water. If, if there's an abundance of water, the elk are pretty scattered. If there's not abundance of water, it seems like they're not near as scattered. So where you find one, you find uh, a, a pretty good number of, of elk. But what I have found over the years hunting some of the same places over and over is there is primary traditional rutting ground. There's areas that it seems like those elk rut in year after year after year and depending on where that rut is in cycle sometimes they're not quite in those areas yet they're, they kind of trickle in i don't know if david has found that in his hunting but you know you start hunting when they're really getting peaked out in the rut it seems like they start filtering into these areas where they do a lot of their rutting and and then you know later in the year you find them more scattered as they have to look for food, depending on where the availability of food is, whether it be grass or agriculture or things like that. But I always start with a map, whether it be on my phone or a topo, depending on what I can pull up, 
what kind of service I have. Onyx is awesome because you don't have to worry about having service. So, um, yeah, that, nothing takes the place of a map and, and being able to see the area that you hunt before you ever set foot in it. 100%. Yeah, and that's so, – so kind of what you just said brings me to my next question. How does – how does different times of years, different time, different times in the year affect the strategies that you're going to use when you hit the mountain? Well, I think for me, going back to what Chris was just talking about, I do have, I agree with him a hundred percent on the elk will rut in the same area. Now where they are in that rut typically depends on moon phase and, and what kind of weather you got going on and things like that, that'll play factors in it. But I've seen an area that, I mean, you could go in there the week before the, just for an, a, a, for instance, in Montana, there was a drainage that I hunted that these, these elk would show up around the 25th. And if you were there on the 20th, you would walk right by this area and never see an elk. But if you were there on the 25th or later, it seemed like those elk, there might be two or 300 of them in there mm -hmm. and I can't hunt it anymore. It's private ground and I don't have access to get in there any longer. So um, but my point would be is he's a hundred percent correct. Now, here's the tip. I guess I would give someone out there that's looking at going elk hunting. If you want to kill an elk period, you do, you never, you're going for the first time you're from the East or somewhere and you really don't care how big they are. Um, you want to go when the rut is going full bore because then you can call in satellite bulls and you're going to be able to get other bulls to respond and come in. If a, someone truly wants to kill a giant bull and they want to do it with their bare bow, they're going to, I, I prefer going before the rut ever really gets going because that's my chance of getting those big bulls before they collect their harems. In a lot of States that doesn't work because Montana's a, for instance, because their season doesn't start till the first Saturday, that could be the 7th of September. It's already too late, but places like New Mexico and other States where, or even Wyoming has an early archery tag where you can get in there in August. And I believe you can kill some of your biggest bulls. So I changed my tactics. And I mean, we would, that could be a whole nother podcast, in my opinion, I how I call and things as it goes through the season. Cause I definitely vary that just like we do for Turkey season. Now, both of you have mentioned now, uh, Chris, you said you started off as a Turkey hunter and, uh, David, you just mentioned Turkey hunting. Uh, I would say, as a Southern guy or a Midwestern guy or, or an Eastern guy, um, if you're, if you're looking to go elk hunting, turkey hunting is great practice. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, when you're turkey hunting, you're locating the birds by calling, uh, you get in close, then you try to call them into you much like elk. So, you know, here in Kansas, turkey hunting is the closest thing I can do to elk hunting. Um, so try turkey hunting, give it a shot. Um, a lot of those same tactics and a lot of those same methods will carry over uh, to the West when you're elk hunting. Um, so what would you say for somebody who has turkey hunted, what would you say are similarities and differences in how you chase those animals other than terrain, obviously? Go for it, Chris. Well, for me, there was a, I've always been a caller, so, you know, a guy that calls kind of gets hooked on calling. Um, as a guy that, I'm not going to say expert, but that has spent a lot of years running a turkey call, um, calling in a turkey and understanding and learning what a turkey's saying when they respond back to you, after 42 years, you, I'm not going to say I got it 100% figured out, but I can say 98 out of 100 of them probably are going to get, they're probably going to get shot um, or shot at, we'll put it that way. 
you get some things figured out. Uh, David probably has elk hunted a lot more years than I have, uh, but you know, there's a lot of the same tactics I, I would agree with, but there's also some differences. I think sometimes with elk, we get, if you're a turkey hunter, sometimes you get too much into the culling aspect when you're working elk. And I think there's really key times to, to, to work with elk and, and key ways to figure out what elk is, is doing. And I'll give a, I'll give an example. Um, a couple, three years ago, I took a fellow by the name of Tink Nelson with me to New Mexico, and we got on a really, really good bull. And I'm, I'm talking a bull that's a 390-type plus bull, a giant. Uh, and the story is, is I ended up missing that bull. I, I, my lower cam hit a rock. I didn't realize that the photography had changed that much, and I was bending down. And I'm still, I still have nightmares over it because I may never, ever get an opportunity to animal like that again. But... We bedded that bull. We hunted him for, for three days. And and I bedded the bull every day and stayed with him, but never could work into him, never could get could put any pressure on him to do anything. And he only had a few cows with him. So what I did is on the third day, he got across the drainage from us, and the wind was wrong, so we didn't push in. We sat around and basically took a nap and ate and slept. And at about 11.45 in the afternoon, maybe, maybe noon, the wind switched, and I made a big move and got way down around him and got to where I'm fairly certain where the direction they were going to wind up moving to go back out that evening. And I let him start me with some bugling. He, you know, he got up out of bed and he bugled a little bit, and I started working him. And I used multiple different cow sounds and raking, and he was as a big bull. Sometimes you can get a buy with being fairly aggressive with them and being like you're a bull that's going to come. A satellite bull doesn't really, and David, you might disagree with me, but you may agree with me. I've seen so many satellite bulls bugling that just has no phase on a big mature bull, not unless they get right in there around the cows. But you get another bull that gets a little bit aggressive with him and he thinks he's the bad guy. A lot of times he's going to come in and try to run you off. And I worked that bowl like that. But that's one situation. Every one of them has to be taken differently. If I had one bit of advice calling to elk is don't call as aggressive most of the time to them like you do a turkey, especially if you're not inside that bubble. You've got to get inside that bubble. It's really, really critical you get inside that bubble because you just generally can't make him get up and walk to you you know, 300, 400 yards. You got to get inside that bubble. I, I, I mean, I agree with everything Chris says, but here's what I guess I would add to that is I think if we're talking comparing to a turkey hunt, um, you've got to understand elk don't come right to you. Meaning I don't, nope. you, I, I mean, I may carry a decoy, but I'm not expecting an elk to walk up to the decoy. If I set a turkey decoy out, I know a turkey may beat on that decoy. You may actually, I know that's where my shot could be. Um, when it comes yeah. to elk, they don't walk up. And, and I, the, the, when I do seminars, I explain to people, I've never seen two elk shake hands. They don't walk up and say, hey, good to meet you, Ralph. Glad you came over today. They play all of life depends on their nose. They're going to get downwind. Mm -hmm. They're going to work like a coyote does to try to get downwind. And they're going to do everything they can so that they can. And so we, I hear the term all the time from elk hunters is he got hung up at 80 yards, got hung up at 100 yards. 
He didn't get hung up. He didn't get stuck. He was doing what he knows that that's what he's trained to do. I come to a certain point and either you meet me or I see you or I make some other tour, you know, something gives him that confidence that says, okay, everything's going like it's supposed to. So the way that we beat it is you use two people. You have one person that yep. is in front and another person calls. And I used to like have distances. I would tell people, you know, a hundred yards. Well, I've thrown that out the window because it all depends on terrain. Sometimes I'm 50 yards behind the shooter. Sometimes I'm 500 yards. As long as that bull can hear me and I can keep him moving toward that, the person that's, and, and then the number one key, and I, and I love him to death. I used to hunt with the Primos guys. They make a call to let the other, let the shooter, the, the caller or the shooter will make a call to the caller and say, like just a cow call to say, all right, I'm ready. Well, all they're doing is telling that bull or, or telling any other elk that I'm up, there's other elk up here too. So now we're going to hang him up. Well, right. so I don't ever have my shooters make any kind of sound. They're a bump on a log and that's all they are. And it's my job to put that elk standing in front of them. And I constantly in the, in the main thing as a caller, I'm to stay out of sight of that bull and keep moving and keep drawing a straight line between my call between my shooter and the elk. And I mean, yep. if you can do that, you can put elk right in someone's lap. Now, the bad thing is, as the caller, you never get to see all that happen. Yeah, but that that and the, and then the other tip I would tell someone if you're going from turkey hunting and you're right, um, Dylan, a hundred percent is very similar. However, be prepared that you're not throwing him over your shoulder and walking out of the woods. It ain't going to happen. So, <laughs> yeah, amen to that. Yeah, you may throw part of him over your shoulder. Yeah, you're not gonna throw all yeah exactly. <laughs> now, this might be a harder question, um, but before I ask it, I do need to, to to say thank you to another one of our friends over at Selway Archery. Um, they make some of the finest equipment for traditional archery. Um, their quivers are absolutely incredible and they make bear archery branded quivers. So if you're shooting a bear grizzly, uh, and you want your quiver to match the guys at Selway make the best quivers and now they brand them in bear archery. So go check out Selway archery. Um, their quivers are absolutely phenomenal. That's what I run on my compound and that's what all my friends are on there. I'm sorry. That's what I run on my, on my recurve. And that's what all my friends run on their recurve because, um, they are just, second to none so go check out selway archery now my next question is this if you're on the mountain and you just haven't been able to make it work you know say it's it's day five of a, of a six-day hunt and you just got to switch it up completely um what are some of the steps you take in deciding okay what we're doing isn't working it's time to try something completely new chris you want me to go first on that one or are you going you can go ahead and go. All right. Um, I think the tactic that I use a lot, and I'm going to throw my kid under the bus, not because he's my kid, but because I'm his dad and I can do that. Um, I've seen my, I've seen <laughs> my son work a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen my son work a mountain elk hunting and just go through at like the same pace that we see kids doing everything else today. They go across there, they're bugling, they're cow calling up, he's not here. They do it again, they move, they go to the next spot, not here. And I can come back to that same area the next day, and I've done it, and he knows this, and work through there much slower, actually trying to think like elk, try to be an elk, try to, what are we doing, and give them time to show up sometimes quietly, especially if you're hunting areas that are high-pressured. Um, and so I don't know that I'm changing as much as I'm, understanding more 
and and I'm going, okay, I don't, I, I'm not going to bugle every 30 seconds and hope to hear someone answer across the ravine. I'm going to assume that he's only 100 yards away. So I'm not going to roar at these these bulls, you know, or the cows. I may make a cow call here and there, and then I'm going to sit for 35, 40 minutes, sometimes longer. The longer you can sit, the better. And teach yourself to move through those areas, especially in high-pressured areas. You'd be surprised how many elk are probably out there that you're walking right by. Yeah. So that would be kind of my thing, you know. That is absolutely 100% exactly what I would have said because that comes right straight across on killing old, mature gobblers. You want to kill a gobbler that's got inch and a half spurs, you better plant yourself because he's not going to come roaring up to the frigging call every time. It just doesn't happen. you got to work slow. you got to be patient. I, I, I see it all the time. I've had it happen with guys that I've hunted with. You mentioned your son. I've had buddies of mine that, you know, the elk are, maybe the elk are bugling and they're, you know, they're, they're running kind of a little bit crazy. Everything's great. But they're, every time they hear a bugle, they go after that bull. That bull doesn't answer. Then they go after this bull and pretty soon they've got everything scattered. Where if they would have just got kind of in the middle and sat down and gotten patient, who knows what might have walked up there. And yeah, I think, right. I think patience and especially as, as, as we get older, you know, and I think as an elk hunter, I'll mention this, I'm kind of a gym rat anyway. I think staying in really good shape and being capable of doing whatever you need to do in the mountains because they will they will drain you. They will they will wear you out. You go out there and hunt 10 straight days and you're you're burning, you know, three, four thousand calories a day and you're taking in fifteen hundred because you got limited amount of food that's gotta last you for ten days it'll drain you. You've got to work. So, you know, every now and again, when things aren't working, it's just a wise idea to take a day and that day be a break where you move slow and you conserve your energy. And it's surprising. Some of those days are the days I'm successful, way more successful than the days I'm running and gunning trying to stay on a bull. Now, I really like, I really like what you said, David. And if I could give you not only in elk hunting, but in hunting generally, in a general hunting rule. My dad taught me this at a young age. Act like that elk is 50 yards from you. Act like that elk is 10 yards from you. Even if you haven't seen an elk in two days, every movement you make, every sound you make, you should be treating that moment like there's an elk right around this next tree and I'm about to see him. Uh, because that's when, when you start acting like, well, there's no elk in the area. I got to get aggressive. That's when you start spooking elk that are right beside you. Um, same with deer hunting, same with turkey hunting, same with, I mean, anything you're hunting at all times, act like that animal is just right around the next bend and you're about to have an encounter with them. Uh, I, uh, 100%, but I would add, I mean, to what Chris just said, I'll go so far, and, and you mentioned it at the beginning. You've been hunting for five days or seven days, and you're worn out. You won't see me do that, um, and I learned that a long time ago. You'll see about day four, and I don't know if it's because I hunt that hard because I'm not a napper, so I get back to camp. It's 10 o'clock, and I don't get to, you know, I'm up at four, so I'm getting five, six hours of sleep. Like you said, you're working. Your body is tired, but they'll mentally wear you out if you're not, even if you are in the middle of them. I mean, I don't know how many times you get into a bugling fest and still don't get a shot or, you you know, it's not the bull you're looking for. 
So it will wear you down. And what I find is when I start making mistakes, when, you know, the bull, uh, bull, bull bugles or I, I see somewhere I want to go and I know I shouldn't walk across there because the wind's not right. And you're like, oh, I can cut across here. And that now you're now you're just cutting your own throat. That's when you do exactly what Chris said. Only I'm going to even say sleep in one morning. Just sleep in for extra two hours. Don't go hunting. Get and you'd be surprised at 930. You feel like you're starting all over again. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, now I'm fresh. Now I'm not going to make those mistakes again. And because otherwise you're just going to continually beat on yourself. Um, and it, I know it's that, it, and it's hard to do. And you wish that the weather would work, you know, where there was a day for a break. It's hard to say, I only got 10 days or I only got five days. And I'm, what do you mean? I need to take a break. I'm telling you, it can clear your mind and make you a far better hunter than you were the day before. I agree. Absolutely. There, there was, there was a time I was, I was in Idaho and this was actually a, a bear hunt, but, um, it was supposed to be a, an eight day hunt. We were eight days in the mountain and day four. So halfway through the hunt, um, the guys I was hunting with decided to come off the mountain. We had a base camp, come off the mountain, go to base camp. And there was a little mountain town, you know, 30 miles up the road. We're going to take a break, drive up to this town, get a burger, come back. And I'm like, guys, I don't want to waste time. Like, we only have four more days here. Like we need to be hunting. And, uh, I was, I was a little bitter, but like you said, David, we were so physically and mentally drained that just coming off the mountain for the day and not even the day, I mean, seven, eight hours going and getting a burger, yep. taking a shower, going back up the mountain with, when we got back on the mountain within like 35, 40 minutes, we located a bear and it was just like, it, it was completely refreshing you got to hit the reset button. Um, so that is taking a break is, is a fantastic hunting tactic because it keeps you on point. It keeps your, your mind in the game. It keeps you physically ready. And so absolutely, I would say, take a break. If you're on a five day hunt, you know, two and a half days in, take a break. If you're on a 10 day hunt, five days in, take a break. Um, and I do, I try to do this even when I'm deer hunting. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm at a place for, for seven, eight days. And, and, you know, we've been hunting hard every morning and evening, just like you said, skip the morning hunt and just sleep one morning. It'll completely reset you. It'll completely just reset the batteries and you'll be ready to go. Yep. Yeah. And, and if it's a rut during a deer hunt, it, you can kill him at 11 o'clock in, in the afternoon anyway. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. Now, what do you do? So, so, hunting tactics we, we've located a bull we'll say for scenario we'll say we've located this bull that's at 400 yards what's your tactics in order to get your shot on this bull you know i guess i if i'm going to answer that question there, you got to have a lot more information so you know i mean i want to know where he is where he, here if i've done my homework and i know okay where he is and where he's going to be going because i understand why he's bedded where he is and where he's going to be headed to, to feed, or, um, then what I'm going to do is try to get in between there if that's possible. But number one factor before I do anything elk wise is I'm checking the wind. And then I want to understand the thermals. That's the thing that I see the most Eastern Midwest guys don't understand. And even I didn't understand for a long time. I was fortunate enough to be a firefighter and some of our training took us into um, doing some wildland fire training. And some of the best elk hunting tips I've ever gotten came through that. And that was how to read the wind. Those guys are, are, because we didn't do wildland stuff. I was a, a structural firefighter. 
but they have to understand the wind to keep themselves alive. If that fire changes and comes down a mountain or swirls around, it could kill them. And so they teach you how to do that. And man, it was like, oh my gosh, I just opened up all these windows to be able to go into places and understand I'll have the wind right at my back for a 500 yard walk, knowing when I get to the point where that elk is, it's going to be in my face. So understanding the wind, knowing what I'm dealing with, knowing where the elk are going to go is, is my first part. And then what I want to do is close that distance to make it as easy as possible for that elk to get to me. I don't want any barriers. If I got to get on the ridge with him, if I got to cross something, it's no different than the turkeys, although elk will come across a little more than a turkey will. Um, but I, I mean, I want to make it as simple as possible. And then I always start soft and work up. And that is because I can go in there and I can try to hammer it. Unless I know the bull or something like that, and I've already, I got some understanding, I'm going to start as easy as I can, but because I also don't know if there's other ones around and I don't want to run everyone off. I can always build up. I can't go back. I mean, if wherever I start. So that's kind of a general sense of how I'm going to get in there and, and keep those things in mind before I ever start calling. And then when I do start calling, I'm going to start and see what, just start taking his temperature, see what he, what he wants, what he likes. Now, can you, can you go into thermals a little bit? Sure. I mean, I guess, you know, the general public, I hope that they, you know, the biggest thing is out West. And a couple things that I would tell someone is there, you'll see a really, um, uh, it, it can be huge. And I don't mean that just in the mornings and the evenings. So in the morning, you're going to have a, a time there where temperatures don't change. And so whatever, if you have a west wind or something like that, you're going to still, if it's a predominant wind and it's blowing pretty hard, 10 miles an hour or more usually will take over. But there are times when you don't have that. And when you don't have that, the thermals are going to be the prevailing cause of the wind. And so you're as the, just, it's no different than um, anything else that heat rises, a helium balloon goes up. Well, as, as the temperatures start to warm, you're going to see air thermals start to go lift. And that's going to be later in the morning. That's not going to be at oh dark 30, but as it gets into the morning, it's going to start to happen. You're going to see the same thing in the evening. You got to really be careful in the evenings. You may slip into a place, winds, everything's perfect. Sun goes down. Now it's all coming together and the wind changes. That's because you didn't take into account what the thermals were going to do. The other one that I would throw out there, if a thunderstorm comes in in the west or you get a lot of cloud cover, it can change wind direction immediately. Um, same with water. A creek bed, you may have, and I've, uh, I've got a couple scenarios I won't go into or, or examples, but where the wind will always blow the same way in these drainages. And the reason is because there's cooler water there, unless the temperature was to fall like below freezing or something, the thermals are actually pulled by the cold water in the bottom of that drainage. And it can be phenomenal places to, to ambush an elk. You may call yeah. them a little bit, but it's when they come through there, you, they have no clue you're there. Yep. They can't get downwind of you. Absolutely. Yep. And, and when you find those, mark that on your map because that's a place to go back to year after year. Yep. And now I, I do want to know on what, what you said, you want to hunt. If you locate a bull, you don't, you don't go to where that bull is. You go to where that bull is going to be. Um, and it's the Absolutely. same concept. It's the same concept with, with, um, in our first episode of elk with the guys from Onyx, uh, we talked about scouting, not where the bulls are, while you're scouting, but we talk about scouting where the bulls are going to be when you're hunting. Um, you can go and scout and find hundreds of bulls and then you go to hunt that area and they've all moved. 
So you have to scout where the bulls are going to be when you're hunting. And the same concept applies for your hunting tactics. If you locate a bull, we'll say 400 yards, you locate the bull at 400 yards, you don't want to go right to where that bull is and try to get a shot opportunity. You need to be going where that bull is headed and meet him there. 100%. You're going to have way better opportunity. And, and I mean, it's it's you know, if we're going to get something to eat, the chances are, at least my kids, if you try, the, the chances of turning them around, not very good, no. you know, but if you meet them there, they, they'll walk right to you, you know, um, and, and animals are absolutely no different. Yep. You know, if they want to go somewhere, then just help them along, just bring them a little quicker, yep. you know, or, 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 or flank them a little bit, you know, but other than trying to spin them around and bring them back. Now, the only time that might change is if I'm going after a bull that I know, it's 11 o'clock in the morning and he's bedded where he is, then I'm going to start moving toward him. And I know he's just, you know, work, working cows. That might be a little different. I'll get around and start to actually go to that spot. Right. Um, And that tactic would be completely different. You know, I go in there and maybe I challenge him or maybe I sound like a cow that's, you know, trying to move out, get away from the herd. Right. That's what I was actually going to bring up is that sometimes in the middle of the day, you know, if you've got a bull bedded, you can, you can kind of push yourself around a little bit and kind of get in his little bubble. And a lot of times you can make him do what you want him to do. doesn't always work. Obviously it's, it's hunting, but, but it, it's definitely worth a person's time. If they've got a bull that they really desire and they've got embedded and they, they think, you know, the wind is right. Uh, the terrain features are right. And you can push in there and get pretty tight on him. Uh, I've had some pretty good luck killing some pretty good bulls that way. Now, now, Chris, I want you to answer this question. If you see the bull at 400 yards, we've covered kind of what to do if you know where he might be headed. But what if you stumble upon this bull and you have no idea what his next moves are? How do you go about getting within shot, sh- getting a shot opportunity at that bull? Well, I mean, first of all, probably the terrain features and if you take a quick look around, you kind of get a pretty good idea of what's going on. I mean, terrain features will kind of tell you how animals move in certain terrain features a certain way. And if you've been around them much, you, you mean, obviously we all know, you know, turkeys don't necessarily like to walk downhill. They don't necessarily like to fly over rivers. They don't necessarily like to cross through fences. So you try to eliminate those things. You can look at that terrain feature elk, a little bit different. They step over fences and, you know, such, but, you look at those terrain features, and those terrain features, you know, topographically, there may be a saddle in there. Let's just say there's a saddle between two, you know, there's a there's a drainage, and there's two ridges, and there's a saddle. And logic tells me that probably the majority of those elk are probably going to cross that saddle. That seems like that's going to be the logical place for that elk to cross. So I'm going to move into that. I'm going to try to get into that saddle, and I'm going to start. I'm going to start with the most logical-looking area that I feel like those elk are going to move to. If I start there, things don't progress. Nothing's going right. I'm probably going to start getting a little bit aggressive and try to move in and get a little bit closer and figure out, especially if it's a bedded bull where they're not moving. Now, if they're moving, you know, and he's staying ahead of me, and I can't flank him very well and I can't oftentimes I will just get to a feature where I can look and see and I can glass and get a good look at things and see if I can kind of figure out what is going on. Don't sometimes pushing your luck 
if you don't have a lot of elk to hunt, you push your luck in there, you bump those elk, and then you don't have anything to hunt because they're so nomadic. You know, they'll move, you know, miles. And, and sometimes if you're hunting public land and it's bordering private land, you push them back over on the private land. So you, you don't want to do that if you can keep that from happening because you want to hunt them where you can hunt them. So I'm going to just let the terrain features dictate kind of how I put the pressure on that elk and where I move to. It, it It's really a guessing game, and I, I don't know as anyone can put their finger completely on that every little thing works. It's uh, You kind of have to feel your way through that. I feel that you have to feel your way through it. I do the same thing with turkeys. You know, I can tell you that a turkey gobbles, and I can tell you when he gobbles at me whether there's much interest in him. You know, he'll half-hearted gobble, or he'll cut me in my in the gobble. If he cuts me in the gobble, I can a lot of times sit down right there and kill him. If not, if it's like a bull that just kind of, you know, bampers you with a bugle from his bed, he's really not interested in you. He's just answering you. But now you got to get around and figure out where I'm going to where I'm going to put the pressure on, what's going to be the logical place for this bull to move. So David's tactic with knowing where the bull's going, it still applies even if you don't know where the bull's going, just by looking at the terrain features. You know, again, stop, take your time, pull your phone out, look at that topographical real quick, get an idea of what you're looking at, and then make your move. Don't just hastily make your move, because it may be the only bull you have to hunt. Yeah. Um, and, and before I give you your next scenario, I, I do want to loop back to what David said um, about enticing the bull to go where he's going quicker. And, and you use the perfect example of, of taking your kids out to dinner. Um, you know, if I, if I, if, if you tell your kids, Hey, I'm, we're headed over to pizza hut, they're all going to be fired up and ready to go to pizza hut. Now, if they're lingering around the house and you're like, hurry up, man, let's go, man, get your shoes on, let's roll. Um, and then you say, Oh dude, I just got a call that that pretty girl you like from school is over at pizza hut. All of a sudden they get their shoes on quicker and they get to Pizza Hut. You know what I mean? Um, so it's the it's the perfect <laughs> it's the perfect example. I mean, uh, of of you know where the bulls are headed. Help them get there a little quicker. Um, now, my next my next scenario. So I really enjoy that 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 uh, scenario you gave and that example you gave, David. But my next scenario is this: if you put bulls to bed, and what I mean by that is is if you don't know what I mean by that. I'm, you see the bulls and you know where they're at. It's too dark to get to them. You know, I, I can't get a shot tonight. Shooting light will be gone by the time we get there. But you know where those bulls are right before sunset. What do you do in order to get close to those bulls for the upcoming morning? I guess, you know, I guess I kind of see that in a, in a reverse a little bit. And that is, so typically when I bet a bull, I'm betting, betting him in the middle of the morning, he's going somewhere. If I'm seeing elk, you know, I got right. him like located the evening before they're typically not bedded. And you got to be really careful because a lot of times, at least a lot of the country I've hunted water sources, may be four or five miles away for us. That's a long ways for an yeah. elk. It's not, I mean, they'll do it nightly where they go four yeah. miles, five miles away, get a drink. They eat on better grass down there. And then here they come back to that bedding area. Be very careful that you're going to walk away from a place that's loaded with elk in the evening. Think if I'm here first thing in the morning, they're all going to be here. 
you may get there in the first two hours, there's nobody there. You turn around and leave and here they come. Cause it took them a while to come back. And that might've been on private ground where you, where you couldn't go there. Bingo. So, yeah, I mean, yep. So that's what I would look at is be very careful walking away on that. Now in, in the bedded situation where it's mid morning and I'm following a herd, I've had this actually happen on public ground where I watched a herd elk. I, I kind of had a feeling where they were going to bed, but I also wasn't positive. So I just waited and let them go. They went where I thought. And then I waited two hours for the wind to change because I knew it was going to change. And so I just stayed away from them. And about 11 o'clock, it changed. I slipped in above. I was actually in between like three different groups that were all part of one big mass of elk. Slipped in there. I made two or three cow calls and a six-point bull walked into four yards. So, I mean, it was, I don't want to say it was that easy. It wasn't that easy, but it was, it sounds that easy. Um, But honestly, I had, I could see that taking place before it actually happened. And that you, you said that perfectly because, I, you know, a, a few years ago, I, I killed a, a really good bull in New Mexico, um, and I shot him on the third day. And same scenario, the first day that we hunted, um, that evening, the bulls came in pretty close to where we were camping. We didn't realize that we were, you know, we backpacked in and that we were kind of fairly close to kind of their nightly, you know, where they were coming to in the evening. And they were bugling all night, and they were, you know, out in the open country. And, you know, of course, there's not a lot of – some parts of New Mexico and the units that I hunt, there's not necessarily what I would consider a lot of uh, dark timber by any means. It's a lot of open country. Um, and if you're familiar with Unit 16E, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but uh, they uh, they would be get out there in that open country, and then, you know, just about – a little bit after daylight and they didn't have that far to go to water. I'm going to say they were about three miles from water. So as David alluded, you know, that's, that's a few minutes for an elk that's taking the stride that they take, but they would start filtering back in. Well, the next morning I had, I basically got in behind them, which is never a good scenario. It's hard. It's hard to do anything with an elk when you're behind them, but I just let them go. And I got in there and got, you know, fairly tight, but the wind wasn't perfect. And I'm like, I'm just not going to push my luck. And I basically backed out. I backed out and left those elk and decided to not even hunt them that evening. I got up where I could glass and watch. And they started filtering out just before dark. Then it got too dark. I went back to camp, let them do their bugling and the thing. I got up extra early the next morning, made a loop around, got the wind right, and got down towards where they were going back to bed. And 8.30 the next morning, you know, killed a 300-plus-inch 5x5 with 10-inch bases that was, you know, 10 years old. So uh, it's a, a fantastic hunt. It worked like a charm like that. So it, that's that's exactly the kind of scenarios that people need to think about. Prime example of be patient, don't push your luck, don't push the elk out, and then make your move when the timing's right. Yeah. So, so if you're hunting off your, if you're hunting off your back, if you've packed in and you're hunting off your back and you know where those bulls, you, you find a group of bulls, um, or you find a herd of elk, you know, the night at, at, at night, but you're not gonna be able to get to them. Do you set up camp there and, and wait for the next morning? I don't like, I don't like to set up camp in the middle of where I think they're going to bed. That's just me. No, I would agree. And, and I would agree with Chris. I, I personally have run 300 elk out of a drainage and I wasn't camped in the middle of them, but I was camped upwind. 
and where they wanted to come down into the, the valley, I had no idea at the time. And honestly, I was kind of stuck because it was the only place you were allowed to camp. The piece of National Forest had specific places. And anyhow, I'm camped there. That night, I'm thinking it's the coolest thing in the world. I got a big bull I can see in the moonlight and like 50 cows. And then some more elk came down and they're all over the place. Next morning, there's not an elk to be found. Well, that wasn't anyone else that did that. That was me because I was camped in the wrong spot. So absolutely, I don't. I would be making sure that I'm camping somewhere, whether it's a mile or two miles in with take the wind into account. And it may be an uncomfortable night's sleep, but it's a lot less days hunting if you get it right the first time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I would absolutely encourage you if, you. if you found elk that night, pull out, go set up camp away from them and then come back in the next morning. I would absolutely encourage yep. you to do that. Um, gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and, and, and sharing some hunt tactics with us, uh, for elk. Uh, before we go, I want to thank our friends over at bonding. Um, those guys, I just got some of their new Fred bear flannel wraps in, and those are just awesome. Uh, the, the, the Fred bear branded, um, wraps that are that are his flannel shirt that that's just awesome and so go check out bonding uh whether you're building arrows or whether you're just looking to get the components for somebody else to build your arrows they sell everything you need and they sell the jigs that make it so easy for you to fletch your own arrows and uh you know i, I know i used to spend if you took a dozen arrows you might spend 30 bucks on having somebody wrap and fletch them uh they make the tools for you to be able to fletch them yourself and so check out bonding archery uh and all their bear archery branded products um those guys just make it easy to build your own arrows. But guys, thank you so much for coming on. I hope you have a great week and you guys stay tuned until next week. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great time. Yes, sir.